This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Inside this week's episode of the show before the show from MILB.com, I uh, got distracted reading a headline about something with the winter meetings coming up and completely forgot that I was supposed to like be, you know, professionally introing a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to share with the class, Tyler, what the interesting thing (laughs) <laughs> nah, it's whatever. Uh, hey, hi, how are you? Hello. Uh, we had a little bit of a break. Welcome. Hi, I'm Tyler Mon. He's Sam Dykstra. Hello, Sam. Hello, Tyler. It's good to be back. Yeah, good to uh, good to be talking with all of you. Uh, Sam, tell us about your Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was good for me this year. Um, it was, as longtime listeners might know, and I don't know if I mentioned this before, but every year... I do this race with my mom. It's not quite a turkey trot. We've never called it that, but other people probably call it that. It's this race that she's been doing forever and ever in Manchester, Connecticut, the Manchester Road Race. This was my mom's 46th year running it. Um, that is I was nuts. told, yeah, I was told she was pregnant with me when she ran it once. She was pregnant with my sister, uh, had my sister two months later and what? still ran it. She yeah. ran it seven months pregnant? That is yeah. amazing. Your mom yeah. is awesome. Yeah, so she, nothing has been stopping my mom from ever doing this race. So we did that again this year. It was much warmer than last year. Uh, I'm happy to report. I thought my time was pretty good, only to find out that I was three minutes slower than last year. So, uh, A, it's good to actually train for races when you do them. And B, father time comes for us all, as it has come for me. But, um, no, it was good. As it it comes for Sam, the youngest person on this podcast. Yeah, that's true. Thanks, Um, Sam. Yeah. It's good. It's coming for you too, Tyler. If it hasn't already, actually look behind you. Long time ago. uh, Yeah. (laughs) It came for me. Yeah. You and father time are good friends at this point, (laughs) old man. Uh, but yeah, so then we gathered at my aunt's house and, uh, I got to see my niece and nephew the next day. They, they enjoyed Thanksgiving at my brother-in-law's family on the Cape. Um, so it was fun to see that. And it's fun to see like my nephew understand what all these holidays are now. He's like two years old. Uh, he's a little older than two. He's about two and a half. Um, so he knows Christmas is around the corner. He knows Thanksgiving is coming. Um, he's excited for the tree and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was a, it was a fun time Thanksgiving this year. What about you, Tyler? What did you do? It was good. You, so had, mu- I, you had a much more lavish Thanksgiving than I did. I should yeah, say. well, I um, so ordinarily my my like personal Thanksgiving, I go to New York and we do it uh, at my aunt's apartment in uh, on the Upper East Side. It's my favorite holiday. It always has been. I've done that my whole life. But now that I work, um, you know, 97 jobs, one of them is as a college basketball broadcaster. And uh, we had a road trip uh, to Northern California, um, me and the University of Denver basketball team. And so we the the team played in the cable car classic at santa clara university and uh one of the uh team managers is actually from that area from northern california so his family had us over to his house had it catered uh it was amazing there were like 40 45 people there um but the food was awesome 
Uh, it was a little bit chillier than I think anybody was anticipating, and it was kind of funny because, like, our guys, these big, tough college athletes are walking around, like, wrapped in blankets. I was like, it's not – we're not, like, on the frontier. This isn't, like, a January in Wyoming in 1859. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we were hanging out outside for most of the, the meal and then uh, got to hang out inside and watch a little bit of football that night. But, um, yeah, no, it was good. And, uh, yeah, now we're three weeks away from Christmas, three weeks from today. It's absurd. Four days from today, the winter meetings start, uh, and we are going to talk about those as the MILB.com podcast gets rolling. Uh, Before we get to all of that, uh, thanks for tuning in on this week's episode of the show before the show. You can find us at MILB.com slash podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Play and everywhere else you find your shows and give us a rating and a review and a subscription. You can also get in touch with the show podcast at milb.com uh sam's on twitter at sam dykstra milb i am at tyler mon and uh another thing that we want to remind you about just announced more than 20 new minor league teams will join the copa de la diversión chase in 2020 the hispanic fan engagement initiative fresh off its second full season in 2019 celebrates the cultural contributions of hispanic communities across over 90 minor league cities this year through culturally significant on-field identities in stadium accommodations and entertainment options and community impact copa de la diversión and celebrates a Hispanic community whose love for the game of baseball has driven the game forward. Visit MILB.com slash fans slash COPA or follow Minor League Baseball on social media at MILB to find out more about each identity and the initiative. And with that, let's get started on three strikes for this week's episode of the show. Uh, We're going to kick things off with a story series that we have up on the site and uh, concluding on the site Uh, very soon the top 10 games in the 2019 minor league baseball season it's hard to narrow it down to 10 because there are approximately a billion games played every minor league season but um number nine just to give you an identity of this uh, or an idea of the identity of this list number nine is a game in which lehigh valley and rochester combined for 15 home runs in a 20 to 18 Lehigh Valley win in 10 innings, that's number nine on a list of the top 10. Yeah, and I, I think Dylan Cousins actually complained yeah. about that. He was not happy. Not happy. No, he was not happy. But also, <laughs> in, like you said, Tyler, it's great that there are eight games better than that because there are. Um, yeah. You know, I might have had that a little bit higher on my list because 15 homers is absolutely nuts and the fact that this didn't happen in a lancaster or in a albuquerque or you know somewhere in the pcl it happened in the il was even more eye-opening um but the possibility for great games in minor league baseball is always there just because there are so many games um you know most full season teams are playing 140 and we've got four levels of those and then you've got short season and even a dsl team made this list so uh there are endless possibilities and when we look back on the year on the whole, I'm sure there's a game that many of you went to this year that you thought, hey, this was probably top 10 worthy. Maybe it was in another year, but this year was just so packed and dense uh, with great performances, great games uh, that, you know, this is a kind of fun way of looking back on it. In the past, we've done game as a Milby. Uh, we did not do that this year. We're just rolling out our top 10, which I think is a little bit more fun in that we're not just highlighting one game we're highlighting it as, you know, 10 times that many. Um, but just to run through them real quick, just to give you guys the idea. Number 10 was Oklahoma City. Gavin Lux homered in his fifth straight game. He had five hits in that game. Kyle Garlick had three homers. So to uh, put together, we put them at number 10. Lehigh Valley, Rochester, as Tyler already mentioned, is number nine. Number eight, 
Ian Anderson struck out 14 en route to throwing a no-hitter for AA Mississippi. Number seven, Lexington walked off for its second straight South Atlantic League title. We love title games. Obviously, there's a trophy on the line. The fact that they walked off was really special. Uh, number six, Scranton Wilkesbury rallies for eight runs in the eighth inning to win a tiebreaker game. If anybody was following that, that one was crazy. That one was a lot of fun to follow live for me. Um, but yeah, they had to rally against Syracuse. They eventually came away 14 13. Uh, Eric Kratz, Kyle Hagashioka, some of the heroes in that one. Uh, number five, the Dominican Summer League Yankees, the DSL Yankees that I already mentioned, set the Meyer League single game scoring record in a 38 2 win. Um, that's number five. You know, if this happened in the majors, I don't think we would have ever stopped talking about it. DSL games can get kind of high scoring. They can be a little weird. 38 to 2 is obviously incredible. Uh, setting a minor league record. We put that at number five. Uh, number four, AAA Reno had a bunch of really good bashers this year. But in one game in particular, uh, Yosmani Tomas homered four times. Matt Caesar hit for the cycle. Put those together. They would be they would be noteworthy separated, but in the same game is kind of incredible. Number three, Taylor Tremell, who came over from, uh, to the Padres from the Reds in a big midseason trade, hits the go-ahead grand slam in the ninth to give the Amarillo Sod Poodles a Texas League title. This is Amarillo's first year in existence. They win a title as a Padres affiliate. That Padres team was obviously loaded for a lot of the year. The fact that Tremell came over, hit a go-ahead grand slam in the ninth inning, was huge. Number two, El Paso scores 10 runs in the ninth, including a walk-off slam for record-breaking homer. Um, that that was a really big game. But the only thing that beat it was almost a similar comeback, but even tighter circumstances. We've already written about this before. Brian Stoltz did a, a feature on this game, uh, looking back on it, which was a lot of fun. It'll be linked to in the top 10 piece. But Lake Elsinore was down to its final out and managed to rally for 10 final runs. strike. Yeah, if down I to its final strike. Uh, was down 10 runs, rallied back, and eventually won in extra innings. Uh, it was an incredible game. All the details are in this story. It's so much fun to look at them one next to each other. I'm sure you guys at home might move things around. How can a 38-2 win be number five? Again, the four things ahead of it were just even more insane. At times, yeah, and at higher levels and against tougher pitching and whatever. There's a lot of things we have to balance. Um, but if you want a really fun way to look back at the 2019 season, I highly recommend this Ted and Best Game series. We're also going to be doing one on individual performances uh, next week, which will also be really cool. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. This is more team-based. It, it's combinations of stuff, like I said, Gavin Lux and Kyle Garlick or Yasmani Tomas and Matt Caesar, uh, even Ian Anderson, and, you know, striking out 14, but I think he got some help in that game as well. Um, next week will be individual performance. So, yeah, keep an eye out for that. But do, in the meantime, read this piece currently on MILB.com. Strike two this week. We continue to roll through park factors for minor league ballparks from coast to coast, so you can figure out which ones you want to yell hashtag Coors about. Uh, <laughs> the Class A levels at the full season ranks uh, up. We discussed Class A advanced a little bit. Full season Class A as well uh, in the Midwest League, the South Atlantic League, the two full season Class A levels. Uh, Sam, give us a, the rundown on this tool shed piece. Yeah, so uh, this will conclude it. I'm not going to do short season. If, if there's a real outcry for short season, uh, maybe I'll do something in the new year on that, get that up. Um, but I think as of right now, we have AAA, AA, Class A Advanced, and Class A 
part factors for 2019, but also the last three years. We, we've put up pieces on all of that. Um, so the Class A will conclude that series uh, with the full season leagues. Uh, it's funny you mentioned, you know, screaming out Coors on Twitter because the one that stood out to me here in the uh, between the Midwest League and the South Atlantic we, League was Class A Asheville, which, of course, is a Rockies Coors. affiliate. Yeah, Coors. McCormick, as it were. Um <laughs> But yeah, Asheville's McCormick Field is typically one of the the most hitter-friendly band boxes in all of minor league baseball, but especially for Class A, because Class A is actually a pretty fair level. Um, it's not like Class A Advanced, where you have the Cal League, which is really hitter-friendly, or the FSL, which is really pitcher-friendly. You look at the averages for runs per game and hits per game and home runs per, per game, the Midwest and Sally Leagues are actually right in the thick of it. Um, they're not that far off either direction. So, you know, it, you're usually going to go to a fairly fair league on the whole. But if you get to call a Class A Asheville home and McCormick Field home, uh, you're going to have a real big advantage if you're a hitter. In 70 games played in Asheville this year, there were 813 runs scored. Um, compare that to somewhere like Lakewood, which is the complete other end of the spectrum in the same league, where there were 458 runs scored. That's a difference of 355. Basically, if you were playing in Asheville this year, it was like playing in a PCL park. Um, and that's compared to you know, some of these other really, really pitcher-friendly uh, parks in that league. Um, so somebody like Taryn Vavra, uh, who's a third-round pick at, in 2018 out of the University of Minnesota, his splits were... Uh, really extreme one way or the other. He hit 400 with a 640 slugging percentage at home while playing for Asheville this year. He hit 224 with a 316 slugging percentage playing on the road. These are things we have to consider when we're looking at prospect status. And, you know, listen, you, you can only hit where you are, and it's great that he took advantage. And I'm sure, you know, if, if he had to play somewhere a little bit more fair, like a Lexington or a Hagerstown or something like that, that his numbers at home would still be pretty good and he would have finished pretty well off with good numbers because the uh, you know the scouting report on him is that he's overall a pretty good hitter and he's coming out of college playing at Class A, but it's still something you I want people to look at with a little bit more of a discerning eye. That's why we write this. Um, one other thing I want to point out in the Sally League before I talk about some stuff in the Midwest League, uh, Augusta was the only team in Class A to move to a new stadium within our three-year window. Uh, their old place. They last played in 2017. That was extremely pitcher friendly. Uh, the home run factor there was 43. Again, 100 is is average. So we're talking about 57 points below average for hitting homers. Now they moved into their new stadium. Uh, we talked about that a bunch with Ben. Now that home run factor is up from 43 to 91. So it's still pitcher friendly, but it's not as pitcher friendly. It's not as much of a, a pitching haven, which is kind of what you want to see. You want these as close to 100 as you can get them because we want pitchers and hitters to have the, the same, you know, play on a fairly even playing field. Um, speaking of the Midwest League, uh, this is actually pretty fair overall. Uh, no run total or run factor was above 113 uh, and none was below 88. So it's all within a relatively decent window here. Um, but Lansing, Fort Wayne, Burlington, these are some of the really hitter-friendly parks. Lake County uh, isn't it's a little bit hitter friendly in terms of run score, but it's really hitter friendly in terms of home runs. So the example I picked was Bo Naylor, uh, who was a first round pick in 2018. He opened up at class a this year, uh, you know, was pretty good 
at home. He had seven of his 11 homers were hit at home. He had a 448 slugging percentage in 54 games played at home. 396 slugging percentage on the road, only four homers on the road. So somebody like Bo Naylor, you're going to have to keep a little bit of an eye on what happens when he moves up, moves to maybe a little bit more of a pitcher-friendly park. We'll have to see on that. Uh, although I think Lynchburg is a little hitter-friendly in itself, so we'll see how that works out. Um, but, yeah, check out this piece. It ran this week. Um, you know, and, and as you're looking forward to 2020, you know, a lot of – 2019 first round picks are getting their career started at these parks. Okay. How do we have to start thinking about them? Uh, you know, if they start to take off because they're playing at Nashville or what happens if they have to play at great lakes, which is incredibly pitcher friendly, what happens then? Um, you know, all things to keep an eye on going forward. Somebody like Riley green is going to play at West Michigan, West Michigan, is an incredibly pitcher-friendly park. So if he doesn't take off in the way you may hope, Tigers fans, just know that going in. Um, so I think this is all useful information. It's a lot of fun to pour over, and you know I hope you all, you all do that going from AAA all the way down to Class A. And strike three this week. The winter meetings start in just four days. We are recording this on Wednesday the 4th. Uh, the minor league and major league baseball universes will collide in San Diego this year. And uh, it's technically a minor league baseball event, which is something that we kind of always explain to people. So much gets done on the major league side. Uh, but the winter meetings are very minor league centric. And uh, this year, obviously a lot to discuss. Sam, what are you uh, most looking forward to? You'll be there at the winter meetings. We actually will get to hang out this weekend uh, along with our buddy Josh Jackson I'll be in Los Angeles for a, a basketball trip um, San Diego is where the winter meetings will be for those of you who don't know those two cities very close geographically they will take like 12 hours to drive between um, <laughs> that's why I'm taking the train <laughs> what are you looking forward to this year yeah so the the winter meetings actually the last couple of years have been I won't say boring um, from a transactional point of view and we'll talk with Ben later about you know the business side of, of the winter meetings and how a lot is going on uh, with teams on the minor league side, but in terms of you know what I'm there to cover is you know is the major league side in a way in that typically we think of the winter meetings as kind of a flashpoint for hey everybody's in one place it's so much easier to make trades here it's so much easier to have these in person meetings and that's kind of changed and I think that's just because of the status of the game and also the status of our society it's it's so much easier to trade trade offers via text via email you know you don't have to be in person to do these things anymore you know there are all sorts of stories about clubs exchanging trade offers via emoji um or you know thumbs up thumbs down something like that um and so in terms of hey we're going to go to san diego and i expect there to be five trades to happen there i i'm not going to point it that way what i do think could happen though is um, you know, free agent signings are picking up right now. We, just today alone, we've had Cole Hamels officially signed with the Braves. As of right now, uh, everybody is saying that Zach Wheeler is signing with the Phillies. We're waiting on official confirmation of that, but that that looks like it's going to happen. The offseason is moving a lot quicker this year, which is great, and it seems like guys are getting paid and teams are getting the talent that they need. So I, I think that could pick up even more because – Trade offers can be sent all the time, but I think free agent signings are much more personal. People like to meet in person and go over this face to face. So from my aspect, I'll almost be looking at it in terms of, okay, who gets signed while we're in San Diego and what are the prospect ramifications of that? What are the trickle down effects? 
we know the Yankees are in the market for a starter. They're talking to Garrett Cole. They're talking to Steven Strasburg. Madison Bumgarner still out there. Uh, you know, if they go out and make a signing, what is the effect on somebody like Davey Garcia or all these arms they just added to their 40-man roster? How does that kind of trickle down? Yes, there are trades that could potentially be made. Mookie Betts looms large, obviously. Uh, are the Red Sox going to trade him? You know, given their status right now, I almost hope that doesn't happen. They should run it back, keep one of the most talented players in the game if they can. Uh, but if they do trade him, that's going to be a farm system altering trade for sure for the Red Sox. And we know that they right now are probably a bottom 10 system in the game. So the, their farm system could use a refresh. Cleveland Indians, I think they made some games, gains in terms of their farm system. But if they choose to move Francisco Lindor, and that, that seems like much more likely than a Mookie Betts swap, uh, that would also give their farm system a boost. There are some things we'll be keeping an eye on in, in terms of trades, but I think almost this year, given the last couple winter meetings in terms of trades and the, the lack thereof, I'm going to be keeping my eye more on free agent signings and what you know, what kind of ripple effects will those have? What will we be seeing for prospects and uh, what that means? And, and one of the great things about the winter meetings is all 30 managers are supposed to be there. Sometimes guys don't make it for various reasons. Um, but it's a great time to ask, you know, how do you foresee this playing out? How do you, you, you want to use this prospect? I remember last year uh, talking to Andy Green about how are you going to make Fernando Tatis Jr. and Luis Arias work and, you know, what their plans were there. And they said they were open to making Urias work at either short or second uh, when it seemed like obvious at the time that he was going to be a second baseman because of Tatis's injury, Urias ended up playing a lot more shortstop than we expected. Um, so it's good to touch base with all those guys as well and talk about their major league future. So even if it's not an active winter meetings on the trade market, there's still going to be tons of other things to follow uh, coming up here in San Diego. And uh, I can't wait to get there and see it all happen and talk to you guys next week about what we've seen. And uh, with that, we will wrap up three strikes for this week's episode of the show before the show. Coming up, Chicago Cubs organization and their third-ranked prospect, Brennan Davis, as the offseason hits December. That's next on the show before the show. We're joined this week on the Minor League Baseball podcast, the show before the show by number three Cubs prospect, Brennan Davis. Brennan, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again for coming on. So uh, you're in your second offseason now. You were a 2018 draft pick taken in the second round out of your native Arizona. You're, you're now, you've experienced one full season. Where are you kind of in the offseason? Where are you in your preparation? What, what are your days like right now in early December? Okay. Yeah. So we had a, we had a strength camp not too long ago. So that was when we really started working out, um, middle of October, I want to say probably October 14th. So that was kind of the, the groundwork for, for the off season and what we were going to build off of moving forward. So strength wise, we're still trying to improve power numbers, get endurance, that stuff. I just recently started throwing. So starting my throwing program, to get that going that's gonna be nice and then i'm about three weeks into hitting hitting a few times a week just getting loose getting ready for instructs in january mm. oh right so instructs are a little bit different this time i, I know instructs typically used to have at, at the end of the season now they've been moved to january 
when you're speci specifically with that hitting work, what are you focusing on now? Because, you know, you are still a couple months away, but instructs right around the corner. What are you doing specifically in that hitting work to kind of improve and get where you need to be, even though we are, like I said, here in the kind of doldrums of December? Yeah, so I have the luxury of living in Arizona. So our hitting coordinator does as well. So I've been working with him. Whenever I hit, I go hit at the complex. And he's given me stuff that he saw this season. I'm working on having having more of a foundation that I can rely on every, that doesn't change as much. Having a, a he he says it as a, a break system, so I don't um, check swing as much because I don't have a lot in my scat load. But we're working on that, getting some cleaning cleaning up in the. Yeah, so he, he used some big words. It's uh, dis, <laughs> dis, uh, dis, and I I couldn't I couldn't tell you the word right now, but I wrote it down, so don't worry. It's, it's okay. There. The information's right. there. <laughs> I mean, but that's just, kind of uh, having the. Oh, go ahead. Having the separation between my hips and my upper body to get my swing through and clean some stuff up. Yeah, and, and you kind of get into an interesting thing there is that so much of the game is changing in terms of what they're throwing at young players like yourself in terms of information. I'm sure it's not stuff you were getting in high school, at least in terms of what terms they're even using. But what have the Cubs kind of done to help you take on, you know, kind of the science aspect of hitting now and uh, all the different ways to think about hitting other than, hey, just square yourself up and hit the ball as hard as you can? Yeah, <laughs> there there are some big words involved with hitting now, but they do a really good job of simplifying it. They they have a lot of PowerPoints and stuff like that that they'll have us go through so we learn what we're doing too. And we have hitting labs and they'll walk us through the information and different stuff like that so we know what's going on and it's not just kept to them. So that that's a, that's a way that really helped me on the science side of hitting because a few years ago when I was in high school, I didn't, I didn't know any of this. God forbid all of it now. <laughs> so it's, it's really been, it's really been a big change, but I, I'm happy to happy where I'm at because mm -hmm. it's, it's just going to make the development better. And what's the most surprising thing you've learned about your hitting style or what you needed to do to improve? Um, what's taking you back aback the most out of the information that you've gotten in the professional ranks? So, <laughs> uh, it used to, it used to be like hit the ball hard. Didn't matter where it went in high school. I'm fast enough. I'll, I'll beat out a ground ball or if I hit it in the air, it's going to be hit pretty far, but just try to square the ball up. But in professional baseball, you realize that, you don't beat all those balls out anymore that you did in high school and to, to do damage, you're going to have to hit for, you're going to have to have more an more of an approach. You can't just go up there looking to looking to just tattoo a baseball. You have to, you have to know what the pitcher's trying to do to you. So just conceptually knowing my swing path now and what, what balls are the best true flight off of that path and are going to give me the best chance to be successful is what I think the biggest thing I've taken away from my pro ball hitting experience. Hmm. 
Hmm. And, and let's go back and, and look back on this 2019 season for you. Uh, you opened up in extended spring training like a lot of high school players do, um, kind of expecting to be moved to short season. You eventually get bumped straight to Class A South Bend, play 50 games, and we'll get into why you were limited to 50 games in a little bit. But you hit 305, a 907 OPS, eight homers, four stolen bases, kind of showing a well-rounded tool package there. When you look back on the 2019 season, uh, now that we're a couple months removed, how do you kind of remember this first full season of yours and, you know, finally getting yourself really involved into pro ball? Yeah, I was happy about how my first full season went. It went a lot, a lot better than expected, honestly, because I, I did think that they were going to keep me on a slower path and send me to short season, which is, there's nothing wrong with that, but I was happy to be able to prove that I was just as good, if not better, than a lot of the guys I played in in low A. So besides the fluke injury hiccup thing that I really couldn't do to avoid, it was just a fluke, but I made the little adjustments I needed to throughout the season and showed myself that I was capable of really sticking to approach, and I think the results showed that. Hmm. And again, we'll get to the injuries here in a second, but um, you know, what was your thought process going into extended and when did you feel like, Hey, I'm probably not going to be around here pretty long. Cause they, they sent you up in May. Uh, your first game with the mm-hmm. South Bend Cubs was May 25th. So it wasn't even like you made it to the short season date when they moved you, they moved you up even a couple weeks before that. Um, when did it feel like, Hey, I, I am better than everybody here. And I think I could even prove myself up at the full season level. Yeah. So there was, I, I knew I had stuff to work on and I was, I was pretty, pretty aware of that. And I, I had talked to my coaches and, um, we, we set out a plan stuff I needed to fix stuff like adjustments I needed to make to be successful. I had a, I had a hard time kind of getting to the inside pitch and getting it elevated. And that was just something I, I just drilled in my early work. Cause one thing about extended is, you hit a lot. <laughs> so we had early work and then we'd hit on the field and all that stuff. It's probably what, what was best for me because it really gave me time to really hone in on w- what I needed to do, what I needed to do with that pitch and get it in the air and what I needed to like be thinking about at my bat approach wise. And I think a big thing for me with this season was approach. I was just trying to do too much sometimes when I just needed to let, just let it happen and it would be a lot more natural. And now is the part where I'll bring up the injuries. Uh, you got to about mid middle of July and just correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you got hit by a pitch while trying to bunt. You come back, you miss two weeks, you come back, you play three mm-hmm. games, July 29th, 30th, 31st, you get hit in the hand again, uh, basically in the same spot while trying to bunt. Then you're out for a, a month, you return on September 1st for Seth, South Bend's postseason run. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you mentioned that they're fluke injuries, but just the mental side, never mind trying to come back from a finger injury. What it, What is it like trying to square up in the box again, coming off a finger injury like that, that happens so fluky in those manners? <laughs> yeah, so I had gotten hit in the hand twice from bunting, and then the one that put me out for a month was – just a fastball up and in that I just couldn't pull my hands out of the way of. So it it was, it was tough, but I, it, it really didn't scare me. I'm pretty confident in the box. If you hit me, you hit me. 
which stinks because it can put you out, but it really didn't waver my approach and what I was trying to do in there. It was, I was, I was mad that it got to the point that it had where I had to miss time for it. But like, I never let it take, take me out of the game before like most of the games I would, I would, uh, write a scouting report on the starting pitcher. So I was still in the game. Like it just helped me learn the different aspects of the game that I wouldn't, I wouldn't have really been aware of if I was focusing on being ready to play. Like I wouldn't have looked into the spin rate and ball, like ball to strike percentages, just stuff like that stuff that I could use in my future, something that I can continue to grow on. But coming back from the injury, I think what really helped me the most was I took about two weeks where I was standing in on bullpens, and that really helped me with my tracking. And I think that's why I was able to produce when I got back in the box and back in the lineup. Mm. So when you mean following the tracking, I, I think everybody understands of you know just standing in the box and and not having to do anything, but you're at least you're seeing the pitches. But what? How did that manifest itself? What were you able to do afterwards? that maybe you were seeing a little bit differently just because you were focused on that tracking so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I picked up, I picked up lefty changeups a lot better after that mm. because we had, I, I'm sure, you know, Braylon Marquez, right. big, big guy seeing the, seeing the fastball below and then seeing his changeup after it, you're just able to pick up just because it's such a big difference. A lot of the lefties where it's such a subtle difference and you can't really see that's where it's a lot trickier, but with the big difference between his two pitches, it really helped me. Mm. Yeah, if you had to pick somebody to to watch bullpens out of, that's a that's a pretty good one to pick. Um, but yeah. as you mentioned, you you came back relatively unaffected. You hit three ten during the postseason. Uh, I think your second game back, you were three for three with a homer. Uh, so obviously didn't take you a long time. And that let's get into that South Bend postseason run. Now you guys didn't lose a game on the way to winning the Midwest <laughs> League Championship, 7-0. Midwest League is a little weird for anybody out there who doesn't know. There's three rounds. There's so many teams that make the playoffs, but South Bend emerged victorious. What was that playoff run like, being around these guys who you know, you've know you known for at tops maybe two years now? And what do you guys think about how that kind of projects forward? How do you carry a postseason like run like that, even though it's only seven games, forward as you begin your careers? Yeah, so the this past postseason that I had with South Bend was some of the most fun I've had playing baseball yet. It it was it was unbelievable. The energy in the clubhouse, everyone rooting for everyone. It was just something that a regular season game couldn't bring to the table. And just like it's hard to explain like how much how much different the games are because you think oh every game should be played the played the same. But just the energy that comes along with postseason is just just makes the game so much so much more fun because everybody's competitive, everybody wants to win, everybody wants to see everybody do well, and it's just an awesome time. And I wasn't involved in the last year in Eugene, but the two our 2018 draft classes is really on to something because they they won it in Eugene, they won the Northwest. Yeah, Northwest. I don't even. Yeah, Northwest League Championship. I was still in the AZL, but all my boys that were in my draft class won that. And then we come into the Midwest League and win that one. Just exciting to see what we're going to do next. Mm, no, for sure. 
So if anybody's out there, I don't know if bets are allowed on the Carolina League, but Myrtle Beach might be a good <laughs> idea. Anybody out there who's into that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so how do you guys talk about that now? Like coming off of that, whether you're gathering at the Arizona Complex, whether you're in text groups or whatever, or coming together next month at Instructs, um, you know, what does that do for you guys as a group, confidence-wise, just chat-wise, cohesive-wise? Um, you know, what is it like to be around a group that for some have won two championships, you're now coming off a championship? Um, what is it just like, you know, the growth of the team looking back on the spring to where you guys are now? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of hard. Like it's kind of hard to say, but winning makes bonds stronger because you get to experience all the happy times you get to experience all the, all the ups and downs throughout the season. And then being able to come out, come out on top is just, just unbelievable. And just being around a group of guys that know, knows how to win and knows what it takes to win is what I enjoy most because that's the, that's the ultimate goal. And when you're, when you surround yourself with guys like that, you, you're only going to better yourself. And when you say a group that knows how to win, what does that mean exactly? What, are the Cubs teaching you guys at the lower levels to set that foundation for winning? Cause everybody wants to win, but it, to, to be on a run like this is pretty special. So what do you kind of attribute that to, you know, what are you guys doing differently than other clubs? You think? I think the Cubs have a very unselfish philosophy for hitting a lot of guys worry about themselves, even in the postseason. like, what am I going to do today? What, what am I like? It's a big I, I, I thing, but at the end of the day, it's how are you going to help the team win? And that's something that the Cubs preach, whether it's, whether it's being put in a position where you need to bunt a guy over or whether you need to have a big hit and score a guy, our guys just know how to do that and have been very clutch the past few years. And I think that's something the Cubs just, they kind of preach it because at the end of the day, that's that's what it takes. You gotta you gotta be unselfish to win championships. Hmm. And you're somebody who kind of knows a little something about winning championships. You, going back in high school, your basketball team were state champs in Arizona, winning the six A title there. How does this kind of compare? I mean, of all the games you have played in, you said this is some of the most exciting baseball you've played. But going back to basketball or some of the some of the other sports you've played, uh, you know, how does a postseason run like this compare to some of your other experiences? Uh, I, I, it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to compare them to the South Bend run. That was that was unreal. <laughs> I would have to say that was the most fun I've, I've had playing sports was the South Bend playoffs. Just, just knowing your team is on on a hot streak and you guys are just gonna roll them. It's there's a, <laughs> there's no better feeling because I we had a good basketball team. We were thirty and one, but just the being able to go in there and play beat beat teams three times to move on was just it was just awesome. <laughs> there's no other words. It was just awesome. It was a great time. I, I think that brings up a good point of the idea of a three-game sweep is just so much more satisfying. Um, yeah. But so we mentioned basketball there. Um, you know, like I said, one of the better players in Arizona. I know you had a potential 
chance to go to Miami uh, to for college. How close were you to to choosing that when you you know had that offer coming in? Um, you know, how close do you think you were going to Miami before the Cubs came in and took you in the second round? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I would have to say that I was kind of torn because I'm a, I was a good student in high school. Like grades are important to me. And I didn't, I wasn't a kid that was like, Oh, like if I, if I get any money in the draft, I'm going to get, I'm going to go sign because Dan goal is to have a good, a good future. And I needed, I needed the Cubs to show me that I wasn't going to be just another guy in their organization, that they were going to invest in me and take some, like, give me assurance that they were going to, they were going to help me be the best player I was going to be. And that uh, their organization was going to be the best place for me to be, that I was going to develop better because I was a little raw in high school and I needed a place where I was going to develop and learn baseball and just grow as a person and player. And I think the Cubs really, really hit it on the nail. And that's why I was so comfortable making my decision. Hmm. So what was their pitch exactly? What other than money? Cause you signed for uh, you know, a seven figure bonus. And I'm sure that makes a lot of conversations much easier, but when you do have this rubric of, I'm going to need to see this, this, and this, what was that conversation like and how early in the process did you know, okay, yeah, they're going to do what I need them to do to make this leap right now. Yeah. So I talked to them when they came out and did their home visits and I had, I had the honor of going to Wrigley for my pre-draft workout and I got to talk to all the higher up guys and they, they had showed me a PowerPoint on how they, how they treat their minor leaguers, not too much different than their big leaguers. Cause at the end of the day, we're the, we're the, we're the foundation without us, like the, the minor league system, the, the big league team will, we are, we are the feeder, the feeder. <laughs> <laughs> kind of hard to hard to explain but get the just the gist of it right but without us that because like a few like not a few years ago but like you always hear the rumors about minor leagues having bad food and not good conditions and stuff like that and just the the stuff that they showed me really made me and my mom have a comfortable feeling with the cubs more so than any of the other teams hmm and one of the advantages of getting drafted to the Cubs is the Cubs facility for spring training and for most other things, the AZL, uh, extended spring training, all of that, is in Arizona. It's in Mesa, not far from where you grew up and probably still live in Chandler. Um, what kind of advantage was that like? I mean, when you said before, you know, your offseason work, you can just go to the facility and hit now. Um, you know, what what is it like being so close to that and how much does – the Cubs facility in Mesa now feel like home. Oh, it's unbelievable. I'm 25 minutes from my mom's house from the Cubs facility. I live in Tempe now, which is five minutes away. So I just made, I made the trip even easier, but it's just, it's just awesome because all my friends are here in the off season. So when I'm not playing baseball, I can still hang out with my friends, still be a kid and I can go see my mom whenever I want. I, I love my dog, so I go and see him all the time. So it just it just makes it so much easier than I know some people struggle with having to go to Florida for all the camps and go to Florida for spring training. It just made 
made made my decision a little easier knowing that I'm not going to be too far. Hmm. And normally in the off season, we talk to guys who, are, who go back home to California or Texas or Alabama or Florida or whatever. And we say, what's the first meal you get when you get home? You didn't, you've never been that far except for that time in South Bend, <laughs> but I'll ask it this way. When you do have all your friends coming in who are now Cubs prospects and they're coming back to Arizona, where's the first place you take them to be like, this is my home. This is the meal you need to have off the plane. Um, that's a good question. Um, I would have to say me and my roommates are a fan of steak 44. So it's a little, a little high end, but that's not how we live, but we like to see <laughs> ourselves when, when we come back to town and like get together, just like, just like a bonding experience. We don't do it. We do it like twice a year, maybe when they come for strength camp and when they come for spring training. But it's a, it's a good time getting the guys together and going to get a nice meal. Yeah, I was going to say, starting off strength camp with a steak, uh, as long as it's a special event and every once in a while, I think that's a good way of doing things. Well, Brennan yeah, Davis. Yeah, you treat yourself. Exactly. Very, very true. Uh, Brennan Davis, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, congrats on all the success so far in your career, and uh, good luck going forward starting at Instructs and everything that's to come in the spring and going forward. We'll be watching closely. Uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We got some new names, some new identities, uh, some stuff to discuss with Benjamin Hill, who joins the show this week. Ben, how was your Thanksgiving? Oh, it was pretty good. Uh, thank you for asking, Tyler. Um, you know, my, my Thanksgivings are always a bit of a gauntlet. You know, my family is pretty close by to where I live in New York City. I grew up in Pennsylvania. My dad's in New Jersey. But, you know, there's a lot of people to get to. Uh, so... I did it all. Dad, mom, friends, uh, all throughout the tri-state area. And uh, I'm grateful to have pulled it off. Well, and good. I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving. So. Yeah, no, we did. Sounds like, yeah, I did. That was very, uh, it was like a very Larry David way to answer. No, no, no. <laughs> good um, well, let's dive right in. A uh, couple of new identities to get to. The uh, Worcester Baseball Club moving from Pawtucket, Rhode Island to Worcester, Massachusetts, which is a uh, city name that is spelled with a whole bunch of uh, unnecessary letters. Um, they will be known as the Worcester Red Sox going into the 2020 season, which they'll actually play in Pawtucket. They will wrap up the franchise's lengthy stay at McCoy Stadium in Pawtucket, Rhode Island before moving. Um, and a, uh, a new team, they will be known as the Woo Sox. They have a, a character swinging a baseball bat, which means that it was a brandiose designed identity. And uh, give us the, the rundown on this one, Ben. Yeah, well, you know, Sam here sitting to my left is a Massachusetts guy. So ever since there's been the news that Pawtucket was um, relocating, I don't know how many times I've looked over to Sam in the office and been like, what is it? Worcester? 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 And then Sam makes that like just infinitely annoyed like, oh my goodness, how are you this dense? (laughs) And then he says... It's Worcester. And the amount of people who have tried to make like Worcestershire sauce jokes like they should have just called it sauce does not know central Massachusetts whatsoever. Um, Sam, not all of us know central great. Massachusetts, like, okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I, I know. but isn't that if, if only not, you could be so lucky. That's not even that's like a British sauce, right? Or is that actually yeah. from Massachusetts? Oh, okay. Okay, good. No, no. It's it, Worcestershire is, I think I'm pretty sure is in the UK. Um I would I would imagine. But anyway, yeah, no, it's it's Worcester. 
the way I tell people to think about it is W-U-S-T-E-R, Worcester. Which would have uh, made sense if it was spelled that way. Sure. <laughs> well, the, other people have confused it with Wooster, which is like, I think, a college. W-O-O-S-T-E-R, which I will get into. Like, there's some confusion with this yeah. identity and how that works. Um, if you're from the area, you might call it Wista, which is W-I-S-T-A-H. Uh, I do not do that. I don't have an accent like some of my Massachusetts uh, fellow folks. But, um, yeah, Worcester. Worcester. Well, first of all, this is not a team that's debuting until 2021. 2020 will be the last season in the team's uh, longtime current location of Pawtucket. And, you know, this is the Pawtucket Red Sox. And they are changing their name. Really, technically, all they're changing is the name of the city they're playing in. Mm -hmm. The Pawtucket Red Sox are becoming the Worcester Red Sox. Uh, But just like the Pawtucket Red Sox were often called the Paul Sox, uh, we're going to call this team. This team will be referred to way more often than not as the Woo Sox. And that is, you know, in their primary logo is not the full city name, but W-O-O. You know, compound word, capital S, S-O-X. Um, so while technically this team is the Red Sox, um, you know, we shall know them as the Woo Sox. And, you know, part of that is strictly pragmatic, um, you know, as a uh, Red Sox affiliate playing in Massachusetts. If you say, like, oh, I'm going to go to the Red Sox game tonight, that's not exactly a clear statement of which team you might be going to see. But if you say, I'm going to see the Woo Sox, I'm going to check out the Woo Sox. I'm looking forward to the Woo Sox. That's different than the Red Sox. And so there is a whole branding around what is essentially a nickname, uh, not the official name, but Woo Sox. And, you know, I learned quite a lot about the city. Um, This smiley face uh, and the primary logo, as Tyler mentioned, swinging a bat and wearing, of course, Red Sox. Uh, one, his swing is modeled after, you know, the most iconic Red Sox player, Ted Williams. Um, although Todd or Ted Williams did have like a torso. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. Uh, but and the reason it is is just this iconic uh, happy face. You know, when we first saw this logo in the office, we were just like, what? But, you know, a little research and talking to the team. Uh, the iconic yellow, happy, smiley face logo uh, was created in Worcester um, by a local advertising executive who, you know, initially made it just for a local advertising campaign, but it served as the template. Yeah, Harvey Ball in 1963. It served as the template for, um, you know, the the ubiquitous smiley faces, you know, that we've all seen, you know, throughout the country. I believe, you know, Sam has a, a squishy smiley face ball on his on his desk. It just happened to work that way, but yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, this there's also a big means part- that, that scene in Forrest Gump was not historically accurate. Imagine was. everyone's shock at that. Just want you all to be aware. Yeah. He did yeah. not well, invent it. Yes. Facts only on this podcast. <laughs> yes, <laughs> That's yes. what we do. Facts only. Um yeah, so that's the the main thing. They're the Woo Sox. And, you know, I talked to Jason Klein from Brandios who designed the logo, and he went way into, you know, kind of what are we trying to represent here? Is it like the sound an owl makes? Is it the sound that the fans make? Uh, you know, is, it, is there a nod to, you know, literally wooing someone the way that Worcester wooed the team from Pawtucket? 
Uh, there's a lot of kind of alternate meanings to get into, but ultimately they kept it fairly simple uh, and have this uh, primary logo, the uh, smiley face swinging a bat. They will often be referred to as the Woo Sox. Um, I was told that their you know, kind of font and color aesthetic kind of speaks to the town's industrial past, uh, a little gritty, but there's certainly still a Boston Red Sox aesthetic with the whole look as well, I would say. Oh, and yes, Worcester is the heart of the Commonwealth. Uh, central Massachusetts, the heart of the Commonwealth. So there's a W logo in which the midsection of the W is kind of intertwined into a heart. And uh, that speaks again to the heart of the Commonwealth, as well as, you know, the love you may feel for someone when you were trying to woo them. One thing that I do I, find I really interesting about this, there are two different W logos. There's a very Boston Red Sox looking logo with the, uh, I wish I knew what the terminology for this style of lettering that the Red Sox actually use is but it's got the little kind of the little bones off of the the sides of the letters um and then there's the other w with the heart in the middle of it and i was looking at this graphic that we have made up in which they have seven hats six of which have w's on them and i was like how are these hats any different and then notice that there's two different w logos Eh, everything's falling around in my house no, I just took that as you making a great point and then being like (laughs) throwing things around nailed it yeah but yeah, I, I find that I find okay. that interesting. Okay, good. About well, I, I think it's just the, all the variations that they want to go with, and um, when you talk to them, did they give any indication on like when they will go with the heart shaped W versus the, you know, standard Red Sox W there, or is this just an opportunity to sell more hats? I mean, why make that difference? I'm not sure exactly. I mean, I'm sure merchandise sales has something to do with it. I don't know how it will all shake out in terms of home and road and alternates in a way in terms of what hat they will wear when. But uh, as you said, with minor variations, uh, well, there are six different hats with a W uh, comprising two different W logos as well as a hat that features uh, the aforementioned uh, smiley face swinging the bat on the hat. So we'll kind of see how it plays out also. Keep in mind, you know, as I mentioned before – we still have a whole nother year at Pawtucket, so it's interesting times uh, this year saying goodbye to Pawtucket while this uh, Wooster is just looming there, already branded, and the stadium's you know really coming together. So um, it'll be tough. And Pawtucket is essentially in the same market, broadly speaking, as Wooster. And I know they want to, uh, in the team's front office, wants uh, Rhode Islanders to come to games in Wooster, but I think there's going to be some pretty hard feelings in Pawtucket and it might take a little time for them to get over the team leaving, you know, McCoy stadium where that has been affiliated with the Red Sox that has had a Red Sox affiliated team since 1970 and AAA since 1973. So, and the stadium 70 something years old. So baseball history really runs deep there and it's going to be a a tough year uh, for a lot of fans saying goodbye to that. And then uh, 2021, Woo socks. And one more thing before we move on to the other rebrand that I wanted to bring up. You mentioned how this is going to kind of be an interesting year of, you know, there's one brand that has already been announced and there's one team that will eventually become that brand that still has to play. We went through that this year with the trash or the trash city, uh, the Rocket (laughs) City Trash Pandas getting announced last year. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Mobile still had to play this year. Um, is this going to be part of a trend going forward? I mean, this is two teams in two years. Are we going to see more of this of, hey, let's get up the identity as quickly as we can, or is this just two unique situations? I think they're both unique situations. I wouldn't go as far to say as a a trend. I mean, so much of it has to do with the timeline of stadium construction, so I think a lot of it is when the stadium is far enough along in its construction that there is time to kind of know – 
okay, this will definitely be ready like way in time and there's there's time to uh, therefore do the branding and get everything else ready. But I think in a lot of cases, uh, this will be more the rarity uh, than the uh, new rule because I think in general, there's just too much to get together to already have a rebranded new team at the same time you're also running one that's uh, in its final season. But, you know, every situation is different. Um, one last thing before we move on from this. I know you were musing about this either on Twitter or maybe we talked about it on the show a couple of weeks ago, but do you know the last time that a team moved locales and did not totally rebrand? They're keeping the same name. Obviously, there's new logos and all that, but they're still going to be the Red Sox. That doesn't happen very often. It doesn't, but we have another example of that from this offseason. The uh, Pot- Potomac Nationals. True. Um, or will be the Fredericksburg Nationals. Maybe that's so kind of we talking about it for. That was probably what we were talking about. So yeah, two of the uh, uh, six rebrandings we've uh, covered so far, or in, in a sense about to cover, um, you know, do involve actually the name not changing, but uh, the location changing as well as the uh, you know logo and overall aesthetic around the team. All right, let's move from that one uh, on one end of the minor league rebrand spectrum to the other end, which is the Class A Advanced Fort Myers, formerly Miracle, of the Florida State League. Uh, They, going forward in 2020 and beyond, will be known as the Fort Myers Mighty Muscles, and there is a... uh, character uh with a baseball bat so you know it's a brandiose designed identity uh he's calling a shot he's uh, a, a muscle with muscles uh what's what's going on here yeah it's a muscle with muscle the mighty muscles and you have a muscle with muscles um this was a rebrand that the team did not announce um you know usually and we're you know there's no set in stone processes these teams follow but we're usually used to Teams saying they're going to rebrand, maybe announcing finalists, teasing all these different things leading to the unveil, uh, X, Y, and Z. Uh, But in this case, uh, the team just on Tuesday morning uh, had a press conference that they had given very little uh, notice of and said, okay, we were the Fort Myers miracle. Now we are the mighty muscles. Uh, 2019 was the team's uh, first year under a new ownership group uh, headed by a guy named Andy Kaufman, not to be you know, confused with Andy. So that's where he went. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, not to be confused with, yeah, the, the comedian Andy Kaufman. Um, but 2019 was the team's first year under that ownership group, so it's not too surprising maybe that they said, okay, uh, you know, we're under new ownership. We want to do things differently. It's kind of a unique arrangement because this same ownership group also owns the uh, Jacksonville Icemen of the ECHL, a quote-unquote orphan initialism because it used to stand for east coast hockey league and now stands for nothing at all yeah because it definitely is expanded beyond the east coast <laughs> yes uh so i got to use orphan initialism i was glad that you know whoever edited the yeah, story kept really that in there um but anyhow so this is a team that you know is uh you know they're running a, a hockey team and a baseball team new ownership and uh if you go back to you know in the history of the fort meyer miracles fort meyer's miracle name that uh you know as of yesterday as of tuesday is uh, no longer with us that is a name that goes back to the franchise's previous iteration in miami when they were my, the miami miracle so while miami is maybe not particularly far away from fort myers it's not something specific to fort myers so i think they also wanted something a little more specific to fort myers and hey there's muscles in fort myers both muscles in terms of people you know people uh on the beach with uh, very nice uh, toned and beautiful bodies and also you know muscles the uh the bivalves um 
the uh, the seafood. And so it's a yeah, it's a very brandiose type design. These muscular muscles. Uh, the primary logo, the muscle looks like he's sort of calling his shot, pointing out into the distance. Uh, this team is a twins facility. So there's an alternate logo. Um, a tw- did I say twins facility? A, twi- a twins affiliate, a Minnesota twins affiliate. So there's an alternate Mighty Muscles logo that features two muscles like locked in a um, macho handshake. And that is you like know, allegedly, per, per, yeah, it's it's um, perhaps inspired by uh, the movie Predator in which Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, Carl Weathers have that. I was thinking it was a rocky ending for some reason, but I don't think you're right. Yeah, I think it's uh, maybe inspired by that uh, Predator handshake. And there's another alternate logo where uh, – the mighty muscle in question is sort of peeking out of his shell. Of course, not shyly, but uh, peeking out of the shell and uh, carrying and hoisting, uh, triumphantly hoisting a uh, dumbbell that has is weighted with baseballs. And uh, the team released a comic book in conjunction uh, with uh, this whole unveil that tells the origin story of the mighty muscle. Um, you know, it's just a normal family of muscles, and they got hit by a rogue wave, and baby muscle was separated by his family. The family got, uh, you know, kidnapped by evil gym rats. And then uh, as baby muscle is looking for his family, uh, he finds a treasure chest with a glowing bat that bestows him these powers uh, to be not just baby muscle, but a mighty muscle. So he shows up and shows and tells the you know, he, he gives the uh, those gym rats the old what for and saves his family. And now he's uh, – I guess he did such a good job of uh, saving his family and uh, being a uh, bivalve superhero that uh, now he uh, is uh, has his own minor league team named after him, the Fort Myers Mighty Muscles. So uh, there we go. Some good alliteration for you. I um, One of my favorite things – oh, go ahead, Sam. Uh, I was just going to say one of my favorite things about this is that the FSL is basically becoming aquatic centric in how many team names there are now based around just sea life. We got the Tampa Tarpons, Charlotte Stone Crabs, Daytona Tortugas, Jupiter Hammerheads and Clearwater Threshers. Makes you think like the Fire Frogs or the Palm Beach Cardinals. And I know the Cardinals are a Cardinals affiliate, but um, I almost want complete synergy in this now. Does this ever come from them touching base with FSL clubs and and trying to get – you know, one theme together. Or? I would I would doubt that it be as part of like a larger league strategy, but I think like in, a, in a, any number of things, you might see an influence there. You know, one team changes and the other says, "Oh, that's kind of a good direction," and another one does it. So the FSL has become yeah largely aquatic now. And uh, someone pointed out in, on Twitter to me today, uh, you know, fl- the fire frogs, you know, that that species of frog are at least born in the water, the coquille frog. And also, if you look at the state as a whole, I mean, its major league teams are Marlins and Rays. And it's also home to the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. So it's uh, pretty interesting how strongly uh, the state of Florida has gone towards the aquatic and its professional baseball branding. And uh, the Mighty Muscles are very much part of that uh, that uh, seafaring or under the sea trend uh, that 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 has really overtaken the Sunshine State. I am positive that at one time I read a story about the Genesis of the Miracle nickname in which it must have been uh, an apocryphal tale in which in order to like be awarded the franchise ownership or something, somebody said like, oh, we need a miracle. And then they renamed it. Everything now that I'm reading basically says there was no point to it. It was alliterative. They were at the time the Miami Miracle. But a fun fact, uh, I did not know this. And uh, big thanks to the guys at SportsLogos.net. This franchise actually dates all the way back. It can make claims to date all the way back to 1926. And for a long time was known as the Miami Marlins. And evidently, in 1992... 
after the then Miami miracle moved and became the Fort Myers miracle, when the Florida Marlins came into existence, uh, the miracle filed a lawsuit against the Florida Marlins saying that they never compensated the team for using that nickname, that it was their nickname when they played in Miami. Uh, They left. The Florida Marlins came in, just grabbed the nickname. Uh, Evidently, the minor league team lost that lawsuit. But um, one of those weird, random visual identity uh, fun facts around baseball in which there are so many names that are are trademarked and claimed. And we talked about this with the Missoula Paddleheads. Like, sometimes teams have to go – crazy because there is not a lot out there that does not have a claim on it of some kind yeah absolutely we've talked about that before and i think it's worth reiterating uh, especially with brandios you know you see a lot of t- uh, chatter on twitter where you know you see name the team finalists or what have you and most of them are two names and people are like oh well of course it's two you know it's two names or two words in the name. It's a Brandios name. And, uh, you know, Brandios does uh, go in that direction more than others. But, Tyler, like you said, so much of that is related to trademarking. And I would guess that just being the muscles, if even if they wanted to be just the muscles, they, they could not do that. Yeah. And so a lot of the time when you see these two-word uh, names, it is to differentiate themselves uh, from other um, entities that have trademarks that would prevent them from using the name in the first place. So um, while it does rub people the wrong way, how goofy these names get and i get it uh i I would ask that people consider um just uh, not that i'm an expert on it but just think how uh many things are trademarked and how tough it can be to to build an entire brand around something that does not have a pre-existing trademark and copyright attached to it so uh those are the two most recent rebrands and you can check out all of the details on worcester and fort myers at milb.com uh winter meetings are coming up in san diego and there's always so much going on from the biz side ben what do you got going on uh at the winter meetings this year well it's a little too tbd in terms of the specifics but i'll be doing my usual run through of all the uh the minor league baseball hotspots, um, the job fair, the trade show, uh, attending various talks, lectures, panels, uh, confabs, those uh, that sort of thing. So I don't have a real set in stone thing, but uh, you know we'll we'll see the winner of the Copa Cup announced this year's you know best uh, Copa team. So might be able to do something on that. You know, always looking for interesting people to talk to or people have interesting stories regarding like why they're at the meetings, uh, trade show, you know, new products or crazy new things that are kind of fun to highlight. And of course, a lot of talking, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, maybe off the record conversations, and kind of uh, it's a great opportunity to uh, you know to be in one place with the entire industry. It, it only happens uh, but once a year. It will certainly be an interesting one. Um, there's also one more rebrand which is coming out later on this week, but we are recording in advance of it. Uh, we've touched on it a little bit that it was going to be coming, but Connecticut's got one coming out. Yeah, that is happening uh, on Thursday afternoon, I believe at 4.30, so probably just a couple hours after this. Unless you're really prompt with listening to this podcast, the name is probably out uh, as you are listening to this. Uh, But the Connecticut Tigers, or the entity that uh, currently is, but will soon very – uh, very soon not be the Connecticut Tigers. They have announced five names, and uh, you know, as a callback to our previous conversation – uh, four of those name finalists are um, two words. We have the uh, Salty Dogs, the Mill Mule. And first of all, this team is the Connecticut Tigers, but they are going back to using Norwich as the geographical signifier. Um, so it's going to be Norwich no matter what the team name is. Uh, four of the five finalists do have two names. They all tie into Norwich city history. But Golden Roses, Mill Mules, Salty Dogs, and Sea Unicorns, and then the lone one-word name, Narwhals. And uh, narwhals and sea unicorns are 
for all intents and purposes, very similar. It's just kind of like, hey, which one would you want to call it? But we have sea unicorns, salty dogs, narwhals, mill mules, and golden roses. And uh, we will soon know. We will soon know. One thing we can say is that it will definitely be from this list. Yes, there we will can be no, say that. There, there will be no surprises, as there have been in years past, if sometimes they throw out names and it's like, oh, no, we chose to go off brand. It will be one of these five. Yes, it will not be the Rocky Mountain. We <laughs> had never mentioned the vibes before, but we are now the vibes. I actually like that name a lot. But, that, you know, it, there's sometimes and, – and, and that one was actually – well, there's so many tangents we can go through when we're right. talking about this topic. But anyway, yes, it will be one of those five names uh, I mentioned, and all will be revealed uh, very soon. And, uh, of course, I'll have an article on it on MILB.com. It's been a very busy week uh, with these rebrandings, and I'm kind of looking forward to a break from it because we don't have any more on the horizon, certainly in 2019, and then we'll see what 2020 brings. But I'm not even sure if I'm aware for sure of any others coming, and we'll see. We'll just uh, play it by ear as we always do. So that story is probably up on the site right now, depending on when you were listening to this week's episode of the show. And uh, that'll do it. Benjamin Hill is on Twitter at Ben's Biz, on Instagram at The Ben's Biz. And uh, you can follow all this stuff, read all this stuff at MILB.com slash Ben's Biz. And uh, travel safe. We'll talk to you next week. And uh, we'll hopefully have a lot more fun topics to uh, debate and discuss. Yeah, sounds good. And as I've mentioned on Twitter recently, I saw Weekend at Bernie's for the first time uh, just last night. So if you want to have any Weekend at Bernie's related discussion with me on Twitter, at Ben's Biz, uh, it's really fresh in my mind. And uh, it's a movie I'd love to talk about. So thank you. (laughs) Thanks, man. Big thanks to Brendan Davis and to Benjamin Hill for joining the show. Um, just one more reminder, over 90 teams this year will vie for the Copa de la Diversión Cup in 2020, each with an identity as unique and impactful as its area's Hispanic community. Follow Minor League Baseball on social media at MILB and visit the Copa website at MILB.com slash fan slash Copa to find out more about the initiative's newest members and colorful, vibrant identities. Sam, uh, when do you actually head to California for the winter meetings? I am actually headed out Thursday night. Um, very excited. I've, I've got a bunch of friends in L.A., um, so I'll be hanging out with them, potentially going to Disneyland and, and going hey, to that's fun. live a Star War, as it were, uh, on Friday. And then I'll be hanging out with you and Josh, which will be so much yeah. fun. Yeah, very uh, excited. So, yeah, a very fun couple of days. And then winter meetings are always busy. Um, so, yeah, it'll be good to recharge the batteries before that. Um, just very quickly while we're talking winter meetings and talking about San Diego, uh, we've gotten some emails about this and and people reaching out. Uh, one of the big things that is on people's minds these days is the professional baseball agreement between major league baseball and minor league baseball. Um, you know, there's been some stories out there. We're not going to address it quite yet. Um, just because it's a negotiation. These are negotiations between two sides. Uh, nothing is firm yet. You know, there have been some reports out there about what could happen until something firm actually happens, until there's agreement, and that could be for a little while. Um, we're not going to discuss it on the show just because it, it would be, you know, discussing something in conjecture and something that might not happen. That's not how negotiations work. Team, they, both sides throw out things on either side. Um, you know, both sides are trying to prove their point. There have been statements left and right and what have you. But don't worry. When there is actually an agreement and there's something that 
is concrete and something we can look at that is going to happen. Uh, and we know exactly how baseball will unfold in, in 2021 and, and moving forward. That we will discuss. But until then, um, we're not going to talk about the PBA quite on this show, uh, just to sit in rumors and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it, it's something that might come up next week at, at the winter meetings. But for now, uh, until there's something solid to talk about, uh, we're going to kind of keep that off to the side and keep our eye on it. When something becomes solid, we'll bring it to you guys to the show the the week that it does. Um, so, and we're looking forward to that. And hopefully it's all good news ahead. But just to keep you guys updated uh, on that. And then, like I said, when news happens, we'll let you know about it for sure. Well said. And uh, with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode of the show before the show. He's Sam. I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week. 